So, with this message this morning, we'll be concluding the first chapter of Philippians. We were able to cover most of that ground in the three previous sermons, if you remember. As such, it would be helpful to briefly recap what Paul has been saying to the Philippians thus far. In the opening portion of his letter, he thanks them for their partnership with him in the gospel and expresses his thankfulness to God for them. He also informs them of how he has been praying for their spiritual growth. Right at the beginning of his letter, we see just how much Paul treasures and cares for these believers. Next, he assures them concerning his imprisonment. That his current condition is in fact being used by God to advance the gospel, even though he is suffering. Paul is able to encourage his brothers with the joyful and positive way in which he responds to his trials. And lastly, in our recap, Paul, as if thinking aloud, considers his life and his death. From this portion of the text, we get the well-known statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He determines that although it would be better for him to die and be with Christ, he, for the sake of his brothers, would desire to remain with them to help them grow. And so all this brings us to what could be called a summary of all that Paul has been saying so far. In light of the report about his own situation and how he has recognized God working through it for good and how he has personally responded to it, now he takes the focus off of himself. Now he gives direct application to the Philippians, like a caring father giving direction to his children. I want you to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. This will be the central idea of the sermon this morning. Believers in Jesus are to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now if someone asked you, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? What would you say? Well, you might say it means obeying God. Or you might say it means being self-controlled and staying away from sin. Or you could say it's about loving God and your neighbor. As you can imagine, there's a lot that can be said about this topic. And there are many different angles from which you could approach that question. So by no means is this sermon meant to give an exhaustive explanation of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. What we will see, however, is what it means in the context of the end of the first chapter of the book of Philippians. So with that said, this morning what we'll see is that living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ means proclaiming and defending the gospel in unity with other believers, all the while without fear of opposition. So let's look first at what Paul says in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now Paul talks about how they were to be unified, and we're going to get to that soon. But first, notice what that side by side unity and striving was for. Notice its purpose. It was for the faith of the gospel. What does Paul mean when he tells the Philippians to strive for the faith of the gospel? 
Well, understanding the circumstances under which Paul was writing will give us the answer to this question. Some of you may remember that when we looked at the verses prior to this in previous sermons, we saw how Paul had been in prison, first in the city of Philippi, and then in Rome, all because he was proclaiming and defending the gospel. That is what the apostle devoted his life to. We saw in verse 7 that he thanked the Philippians for their partnership in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. From verse 12, he goes on to say how his circumstances of being imprisoned advanced the gospel. And in verse 18, he says that whether it be in pretense or in truth, he rejoices in the proclamation of the gospel. So it is clear that proclaiming and defending the gospel of Christ is what is in view when Paul says, strive for the faith of the gospel. It was the central reason for why Paul was in the situation he was in, and it is also what kept him going despite his hardship. So in summary, Paul's circumstances show us that a major part of living a life worthy of the gospel means proclaiming and defending it. But when we think about these things, a question arises. Why is the gospel worthy of being defended and proclaimed? Why is the gospel worth living for, striving for? Or to put it yet another way, what is it about the gospel that necessitates men and women living in such a way as to be worthy of it? Well, there are two reasons. The first is because of what the gospel is. Think, for example, of the office of the Prime Minister here in Barbados. That is an office that carries with it a high honor, simply because of what it is. Even if you knew nothing of the person of the Prime Minister, even if the person had only just been elected and and they hadn't yet done anything to warrant respect and honor of their own, there is still an inherent honor in the office itself. Why is that? Because of the power and authority wielded by the Prime Minister. This makes the office weighty in and of itself. Likewise, the gospel has this inherent worth because of what it is. The gospel too is weighty and powerful. Understand that the gospel is God's primary chosen means to glorify himself before men. It is God's primary chosen means to glorify himself before men. I want you to think about the significance of that statement. Think about the gospel in light of some of the other works of God. Yes, God has raised up the mountains, strong and immovable, and the tower over men causing them to say in awe, what a mighty God who made them. And God has filled up the oceans, deep and vast and mysterious, Causing men to say in awe, what an unsearchable God who made them. And God has stretched out the heavens, trillions and trillions of stars over trillions and trillions of light years. Against such a scale, a man can feel like nothing. And at this, a man exclaims in awe, oh, what an infinite God who has made them. But it is the gospel in which the love And mercy of God is displayed in the most awesome way. 
that God himself has become a man. To put on flesh and bones and condescend to our level. To make himself like us. To come down from his throne to be mocked and abused and die a sacrificial death for men and women who did not even care to be saved. As far as narratives go, the gospel is the greatest. There are many things in this world that are true. But the truth that the word became flesh and lived among us and willingly died a painful and humiliating death to pay for our crimes and reconcile us to the Father, this truth has the top honor. So understand that when the Christian marches forth on his mission to make the glory of God known throughout the earth, this is how he does it. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thus, the defense and proclamation of the gospel. This message should be essential focus of our Christian life. The preeminence of the gospel message because of the weight of glory to God that it carries necessitates us living lives worthy of it. It is not something insignificant that we have the option of ignoring. You can't put it in the back of your mind. You can't leave it alone. You must deal with it. Now we said there were two reasons. The second is because of what the gospel has done. So recalling our analogy to the office of the Prime Minister, I said that the office itself has inherent honor and worth because of what it is. But also, there is an honor and worth that the Prime Minister has, or can have, once they have actually done something. Think of things like managing the country's economic affairs without corruption. Punishing evil and rewarding good. Protecting and promoting light, order, and life. This is analogous to the gospel again because the gospel is not only worthy of our lives because of what it is inherently, but because it has actually accomplished much. We were all dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has forgiven us our debt by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he has raised us to newness of life so that instead of living lives of disobedience, we are now able to walk by faith and please him. You see, the gospel was the means by which the Holy Spirit opened up our blind eyes and changed our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. So what's my point? My point is, we cannot live the same way after receiving the gospel that we did before receiving the gospel. Prior to your conversion, you cared nothing about the glorification of God. But now, it is always on your mind. Do my actions glorify God? Does my speech glorify God? Do my thoughts glorify God? If you are a Christian, the gospel has changed you. The old patterns of sinful life can no longer dominate you. Now the fruit of the Spirit must be evident in you. Your life has been bought with a great price, so you must spend it living in a manner that is worthy of the price that has been paid. A man who says that he has been saved but 
continues in willful disobedience and indulgence in sin, day after day, that is not a man who has grasped what God has done for him. And in such a case, you would actually have cause to look at such a person and doubt whether or not they're actually saved. Ah, but the man who denies himself and picks up his cross and follows Christ. That man understands the significance of what was done for him and so seeks to live in light of the gospel. So it should be clear to all of us that the gospel is indeed worthy of our very lives. As a sinner saved by grace, you should desire nothing less than to live in such a way that is worthy of that price that was paid. So we've just seen that striving for the faith of the gospel in the context of Philippians 1.27 means proclaiming and defending the gospel and that it is indeed worthy of such. So now, let us shift our focus to the other significant portion of the text. Paul tells the Philippians to strive for the faith and to do it in unity with other believers. Look at verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul qualifies his command to strive for the faith of the gospel with the instruction to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, side by side with other believers. The Philippians were to proclaim Christ's gospel and they were to do it together in unity with other believers. This concept of Christian unity is one of the major themes in the book of Philippians. Indeed, as we heard in our earlier recap, Paul was thankful for the partnership in the gospel that he had with the Philippians. The prayers and provision that he received from them was a great blessing. It enabled him to continue traveling and preaching, and it provided him support while he was in prison. And all of it was made possible by their Christian unity. They worked together to advance the cause of Christ and to bear each other up during times of suffering. And as we will see, they were able to do so because they shared a common drive and a common faith. So let's take a look at this unity that Paul is calling the Philippians to have amongst themselves. The first thing I want us to notice is the purpose of this unity. In this case, the purpose is the defense and proclamation of the gospel. Now this is important because the purpose of the unity will determine what the unity should be based on. I'll say that again. The purpose of the unity will determine what the unity should be based on. That is to say that if the advance of the gospel is the goal, then a unity that is based on something frivolous will not do. For example, some of us here like sports. Should a common interest in sports form the basis for our endeavor to strive for the gospel? No. I mean, if we wanted to strive and endeavor for you know, forming a sports team then a common love of sports would be an asset. That'd be great. But we're talking about proclaiming and defending the gospel. I mean, 
Imagine if we unified over sports here in this church. What about those of us who have no interest in sports? Do we leave them out of our union? Do, do we leave them out? Only to have them form their own segregated group based on something else? Does that sound right to you? Segregation within the church? No. That is not what Paul is calling the Philippians to. And really, sports? Sports is the basis for our unity. It's so fickle. There's no weight to it. There's no power in sports. At least the sort of power that enables men and women to endure persecution and violence. I'm not enduring persecution and violence for the West Indies. No, 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 no. We need something else. Paul says that we are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. So when Paul speaks of one spirit, he could refer he could be referring to either of two things. Spirit, in one sense, can refer to an attitude or a mindset. Or, it could be referring to the Holy Spirit himself. In either case, Scripture offers us help. If by spirit, Paul means attitude and mindset, then what he is commanding is that the Philippians share a common attitude towards living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've already seen what this attitude should be. Remember how we just looked at the worth of the gospel. All believers should share this attitude. We should all have a common desire to see the gospel spread throughout the land. Saving souls and silencing the scoffers. And it's an appropriate basis for our unity. If a love for and recognition of the importance of Christ's gospel lies at the heart of our efforts to strive for it, then we can be effective in our witness. Why is that? Because when we are all motivated by the same thing and not separated by our particular interests, there is less strife in the body of Christ. Now what if Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit? What if more than standing firm in a common attitude, he is telling them to stand firm in the Holy Spirit himself? This makes sense too. After all, the Holy Spirit of God is fundamental to each and every believer. Everyone who is a Christian has received the Holy Spirit and is indwelt by Him. It was through the Spirit that new life came to us. It is His Spirit that teaches us. His Spirit empowers our faith. It is His Spirit that keeps us blameless and preserves us unto the day of Christ. Thus, it is not a stretch to interpret Paul here as telling them to maintain unity in the Holy Spirit of God. He's saying, if you Philippians are to stand for the faith of the gospel, you are to stand firm. If you are to stand firm in the face of opposition, you must stand firm in the Spirit of God. It is where you started, and it is where you must remain. He is your source of strength. Don't go looking elsewhere for power and strength. Stand firm in the Spirit. Well, praise be to God. He is our source of power and strength, even to this day. And what of the one mind that they were to be of? Well, it is by nature that all believers share in 
the same spirit, whether that refers to an attitude or the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. After all, there is one Lord, one baptism. But there should also be a sharing of doctrine held by all believers. Paul was talking about the essential tenets of the faith. The faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The same faith that if anyone deviated from it, the same Paul declared, let them be accursed. The faith that says eternal life are found in Christ and in Christ alone. And is by faith and faith alone. The faith that says if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Not by the works of the law, nor of the works of the flesh, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. Only if we are united in these truths can we effectively proclaim and defend the gospel. Only then can we strive for the faith. Brothers and sisters, in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, we must value the gospel above everything else, such that its advance becomes your mission in life. When Paul tells the Philippians what he expects of them, and tells them what manner of life they should have, he doesn't command them to seek after wealth. He doesn't tell them to pursue academic success or acclaim. He doesn't command them to have a manner of life which is primarily concerned even with going through the motions of living in this world. Primarily concerned with food and shelter and clothing. No. Work together with each other to defend and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what he tells them. Are we doing that today at Covenant Reform Baptist Church? Is it evident from our lives that we value the gospel above everything else? And what about us as a local church family? All of us who gather here Sunday after Sunday, sometimes at community group on Wednesdays. Where does our unity lie? If we were to start and examine the relationships that we have in this church, does a common love for the gospel of Christ fundamentally bind us together? Now I'm not saying it's wrong to bond over other things like a love for music or politics or whatever, but those things shouldn't be fundamental to our bonds in the church. Even if those interests were to change and fade over time, the bonds of unity in the church should remain strong because a common love for the gospel lies at the root of our unity. And this love is given and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Are we of one mind here in the church at Covenant Reform Baptist Church? Are we united on the essentials of our common faith? To be sure, there are secondary issues that we may disagree on and still be brothers and sisters, for sure. But the essentials, those need to be held by all. How can we proclaim and defend the gospel if we are unclear on what that gospel is? For example, when the deity of Christ is attacked by the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses, we need to be firm and united in the truth that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A perverted gospel is a useless gospel. All of us need to take an interest in matters of doctrine. We need to ask ourselves, is there a culture in this church that 
disregards as unimportant the matters of orthodoxy, the matters of straight doctrine? Do we run from debate, uncomfortable though they may be, thinking that we are better off if we don't flesh out these important issues? We need to be of one spirit and of one mind as we work together for Christ. This is a big part of what it means to live lives worthy of the gospel. And now we'll come to the last main point. Believers who are living lives worthy of the gospel do not fear their opponents. The gospel, because of what it is and what it has done, has removed any real reason we had to fear our opponents. How does this work? Well, let's look at it logically. Remember what we said about what the gospel is. It's God's primary chosen means of bringing glory to himself. And we also know that God will not be mocked. He will be glorified. Make no mistake about it. Therefore, we can be confident knowing that we will not ultimately be ashamed by the gospel, nor will its promises fail us. God will not allow his primary means of bringing glory to himself to fail. All of our efforts in speaking out against Satan's lies, even if they seem to be failing, even if harm comes to us in the process, everything we do in defense and proclamation of the gospel is guaranteed to bear some kind of fruit in the end. Therefore, we need not have any fear. And in addition to what the gospel is, inherently, you remember what we said about what the gospel has done. Essential part of the gospel is that God, through Christ, has defeated death. If Jesus has defeated death, what reason do we have to fear it? Oh, death, where is your sting? And that's especially so if death comes to us at the hands of our enemies. One day, Jesus Christ will return to earth and remove all of his enemies. The ultimate destiny of those who oppose Christ and his church is to be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Because of the gospel, nothing that is done to the believer by his enemies will last. I'm sure that there are more eloquent and intricate ways I could tell you all this, but it really is just as simple as that. Jesus Christ wins in the end, so don't be afraid. It's really quite simple. Now, it's right and fitting for the believer to be fearless by nature, and so Paul is right to command us to it. But fearlessness has a secondary purpose. And we see that from what Paul says in verse 28. He says... I'm not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Paul tells the Philippians that being unafraid of their opponents has a symbolic purpose. It's like a message from God to the opponents of Christ. And again, this message is simple. God is saying to his enemies, It is you who should fear, because you are headed to destruction. You can do nothing to my children because I have saved them. The scripture here is saying that fearless living is a loud and clear message as if booming from the mouth of God straight to the ears of his enemies. My people have no fear because I am with them. 
And if I am for them, who can be against them? You who oppose me will be crushed. And notice something else. Paul says it is a clear sign. Why is this message clear? It is because of the basis of the fearless living. It is based upon faith in Christ. That's why we're fearless. For example, the people of a country might exude fearlessness because that country has the most technologically advanced weaponry or the highest numbers of stockpiled weapons. Or maybe they trust in their political and military leaders. Charismatic men or strong warriors. This to an extent makes sense because all of these things that I just mentioned, technology, weapons, political and military leaders, all of these things I just mentioned have power. But it is ultimately a power that will fail. Technologies become obsolete. Weapons, they break down and rust. Our leaders fail us too. They get embroiled in scandals or they make errors in the way that they handle situations and we're done with them. And even if they don't fail us in in those ways, they eventually grow old and die. They don't last forever either. And what's more, technology or weapons or human leaders may be able to fight off other nations, but who or what will save you from death itself? Or what will deliver you from the hands of the God of justice? You see, Christians do not put their faith in these earthly powers, in men and the inventions of men. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only ruler who will crush all other enemies once and for all under his feet. And he is the only one who has defeated death itself. This is why the message of fearless living comes across so clearly, because it is based solely on Christ. Let me tell you, our enemies don't get the message because we make shows of force. We don't raise up armies or brandish weapons. They don't get the message when we spew violent and vile threats with a puffed out chest. They don't get the message when we do any of these things that the people of the world do when they want to show off their imagined superiority. What do we do? We have faith. We believe God. We trust in His promises. We are still and know that He is God. And so we live without fear. This is why it is such a clear message. When our enemies see our lack of numbers, because they are more numerous than we, when they see our meekness and gentleness, when they see how when we are reviled, we do not revile in return, when they see all of these things that to them make us pray who should be cowering and begging for mercy, When they see all of these things and yet we have no fear. Oh, that's when they understand. That's when they realize their weakness. When even their best efforts to intimidate us and to crush us fail simply because we believe God. And we fear Him rather than man. That's when they get the message. And it's a clear message. So the next time you are opposed in your witness for Christ... Remember to live a life worthy of the gospel. Be bold in light of that saving gospel. Fear not. Don't back down when your colleagues at work tell you to shut up about the need for 
repentance because of sin. Don't cower when your family members mock you or even disown you. Don't shy away from engaging that scoffer who denies Christ with an intimidating eloquence. Speak up. Because when you do, you are saying much more than you think. Let your boldness be a message to the wicked men and women of this world that they are headed for destruction unless they repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, we've seen how a life worthy of the gospel is one that is fearless in the face of opposition. And we should note, based on what Paul says next, we're not just talking about the threat of opposition. We're not just talking about the enemies of Christianity simply saying that they oppose us and that they would like to imprison us or injure us or kill us. We're talking about opposition where these things are actually done to the people of God. We all know that there are people, or rather, we all know people who oppose us with their words, but really and truly their bark is worse than their bite. They don't really bother us. But that sort of opposition is not what is primarily in view here. Paul is encouraging the Philippians to be fearless in the face of this sort of opposition where the consequences could involve serious, emotional, mental, and physical suffering. It's talking about real harm. Look at verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. I want you to focus on verse 30 before we look at verse 29. It says, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. The suffering Paul is talking about is the suffering that comes upon the people of God when they involve themselves in the same struggle that Paul has been involved in since the day he was converted. It is the same struggle that Paul has been telling us about since he began his letter. The conflict he is speaking of is the conflict that arises from the proclamation of Jesus Christ in and to a world that hates Jesus Christ. And the suffering includes things like stonings and beatings and slander and imprisonment. All of these things and more Paul endured for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the Philippians saw it. This is what he means when he tells them about the conflict that they saw he had and still has. They saw him beaten and imprisoned in Philippi when he first came to them. And he is still enduring imprisonment. Even as he writes this letter to them. I want us here in this church to be clear about the very serious nature of the opposition and suffering that Paul is commanding us to not only endure, but to endure fearlessly. This should really make us sober-minded about what it means to follow Christ. We don't want to be flippant about the opposition that faces us in this sinful world. Indeed, suffering will come when we live our lives defending and proclaiming the gospel. Because the world hates that. But again, scripture offers us comfort regarding this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Notice something. God gives us the suffering. 
It is granted to us. The language that Paul uses here speaks positively of suffering for the sake of Christ. He even, he even likens the granting of suffering for the sake of Christ to the granting of our belief in Christ. Think about that. The Bible is clear that God grants belief to those he has chosen. He gives us our faith as a gift. And that faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ saves us from our sin. All of us can easily see how the gift of faith is a good and gracious and kind and loving thing. But Paul is here saying, suffering for the sake of Christ is like that. When you think about your faith in Jesus and the salvation that it enabled, and you say, hallelujah, thank you God for giving it to me. Well, guess what? When you think about the pain of persecution and slander against you and how the world opposes you and makes you suffer for your testimony about Jesus Christ, you should also say, hallelujah, thank you God for giving it to me. For granting it to me. Oh, that I could suffer for your glory. That I, who am but dust, could have the honor of suffering like my Savior. Some of you may not be convinced. Well, let me make the case to you. A Christian who is living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ recognizes that the suffering that we face is being used by God God for our good. The Christian recognizes that suffering, rather than being a tool of destruction in the hands of the unbeliever, is actually a tool for construction in the hands of a loving God. In light of this, the Christian thanks God for, and so rejoices in the opportunity to suffer for his sake. Let me share with you just some of what the Bible has to say about suffering for the sake of Christ. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Suffering is used to build up the people of God and increase our joy in Him. Doesn't that sound strange? Suffering leading to joy? Really? Our enemies intend suffering to bring about despair. But remember the scripture just said, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But where does this hope come from? When we endure suffering, it strengthens our spiritual muscles and it builds character. This then leads us to hope in the glory of God. And then ultimately, joy is produced because we look forward to that glory being revealed when all is said and done. Imagine going through that process. Imagine being thrown into a dungeon because you refuse to renounce Jesus Christ. There's no trial. There's no court that you can appeal to. The powers that be say you in that dungeon and you in that dungeon. You barely get food. 
And when you do, it's not even fit for a dog to eat. The chains are heavy. And cold, hard iron of the shackles is so tight around your wrists and legs that it cuts into your skin. It's dark and it's damp and it smells of human waste. And the only company you have is the prisoner next to you. And he looks like he's been here for years. Forget about encouraging conversation. All he does is remind you what your future holds. Unable to keep up his head, skin clinging to his ribcage, barely conscious, dirt and grime masking the man that he used to be. Imagine the despair of being in that situation. Days turning to weeks, weeks turning to months, months turning to years. But through it all, the Holy Spirit has not left you. You pray and you sing. And even though you can only manage a whisper, it comes out. Great is thy faithfulness. You endure and eventually you realize the strength that is being supplied to you by the Holy Spirit. A strength that you do not see in any of the unbelieving prisoners around you. This dungeon has broken other men, but it has not broken you. And now you recognize that it never will. Now your hope is being built up. Greater and greater hope is being produced in you every day that you spend in that dungeon because you endure. You are seeing God's sustaining power at work firsthand. And then the Spirit brings to your memory the words of Paul to the Corinthians. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Hallelujah! One day, I will trade these iron chains for a golden crown. These scraps of food for a banquet. This dungeon for a mansion. For I am a child of God. And if I'm a child, then I'm also an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. For I have suffered with Him in order that I may be glorified with Him. Hallelujah! Suffering produces hope. Suffering produces reward. It is doing something for me. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, when you leave here today, I pray that the Spirit reminds you to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. As I said in the beginning, there's so much more that we can say about this. The word of God is so full of truth that if you live forever, you could not exhaust all of it. But for today, as far as we have been able to see from this last section of the the first chapter of Philippians, spend your days on this earth proclaiming and defending the gospel of Christ. Treat it with the weight and honor that it deserves. Be united in this spirit with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Share this attitude that the gospel is worth everything that you have. Everything that you are. Be united in the truth about Jesus Christ. Let it be said that the members of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church are of one mind when it comes to the gospel. That we are of one mind regarding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And through it all, be bold in the face of opposition. Understanding that as a Christian, suffering is to be expected. 
and receive it with joy as it is granted by God to us for our good. He is faithful to reward His people. So brothers and sisters, live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen.